Welcome to the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast. I am Beth Shank, host of the podcast, along with our guest host, Dr. Shanda Demarest, who is interviewing faculty members and educators from the School of Nursing Commitment, an important focus of the Nurses Climate Challenge. In this episode, she interviews a phenomenal leader and a friend of the podcast, Dr. Carol Ziegler. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. It's Shanda here. Excited to share the next episode of the Nurses Climate Challenge series featuring nursing faculty teaching students about health impacts of climate change and how to take action. Um, This is a special series for the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast. And before I introduce the guest for today, um, I'd like to take a moment to draw folks' attention to a uh, commentary that just came out from The Lancet. And it's called the flood of injustice. Does uh, a recap of some of the really, really extreme impacts of some of the flooding in Pakistan. And a lot of times when we're discussing climate um, and what that means for human health, we like to draw attention to what's happening in your own communities. Um, but at the same time, obviously, it's relevant to to be thinking about what other people across the planet are experiencing and um, what's happening in Pakistan um, right now, and and also, you know, for the last several weeks related to the flooding is it's it's pretty mind boggling. So, if folks haven't had a chance to learn a little bit a little bit about that. Um, I'm just taking some of this recap from that Lancet article that came out. I'll link it here too. So on the back of a period of exceptional heat um, this year in 2022, Pakistan has now been experiencing record-breaking monsoons. So a massive amount of rainfall resulting uh, in a lot of flooding. About a third of the country is experiencing that. And this article shares the the scale of the crisis. So I'll share some numbers here. 33 million people in Pakistan have been displaced by the flooding. Over 1,300 people have been killed, another approximately 1,600 injured by the floodwaters. 1.2 million houses have been destroyed. 5,000 kilometers of roads and 240 bridges have been destroyed. It's estimated that about 735,000 livestock have been lost, 2 million acres of crops damaged, 1,800 schools, and almost 1,500 healthcare facilities have been affected. So those numbers are astounding and disturbing, and it's just so so sad that these communities um, are experiencing the inequitable impacts of climate. So I, I encourage you to, yeah, to, well, to read the article, to think more about what's happening to our, our brothers and sisters in Pakistan right now. And when we have folks at this intersection who, whose lives are so upturned by climate and weather events, um, this is going to be a very, very long time coming back for the folks in in Pakistan. So, 
Yeah. Well, we'll take a deep breath. Just hold on to that for a moment. Um, and then I'll shift into the, into the conversation here with Carol Ziegler. So Dr. Ziegler, um, joins us as an expert in this type of inequity. She's a professor of nursing at Vanderbilt University, and she's duly certified as a family nurse practitioner and advanced practice holistic nurse. Um, she's co-founder of the Climate, Health, and Energy Equity Lab at Wondery within Vanderbilt. Um, she serves as a representative on that Lancet Commission on Climate and Health. She also chairs the American Nurse Association's Planetary and Global Health Innovation Committee. And talking with Carol anytime is incredibly expire inspiring. Um, and today we got into what her experiences are caring for patients in low income settings in her home area of Nashville. Um, we talked about um, this concept of folks that are living green lifestyles by nature due to their low income, um, or, or not explicitly due to their low income, but um, basically this concept of having a lower carbon footprint, but kind of not getting any credit for that. Carol talked about um, an idea of creating a system of care that has biodiversity. Super cool. So ideating different care modalities uh, as practitioners and how nurses can have a role in that. I asked Carol about how she's inspiring students to think differently about patient care and, and actually vice versa. Uh, she's She shared how she draws a lot of inspiration from her students. She talked about the value of nursing profession and what it means to to be a caregiver at this time. Um, so tough conversation today, and I invite you to think about whatever situation you are in as a care provider or a nursing educator, what inequities are being experienced by folks um, around you, and what is your level of influence now, and, and what, what could it be if you think differently about how yeah, about how your patients and clients and communities may be experiencing inequitable impacts um, that we as nurses can draw attention to and take action on. So thanks again for being here. And I look forward to the next time we chat. Good morning, Dr. Carol Ziegler. Hey, we're here for some coffee. Thanks for joining me. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so happy to be here with you this morning. Uh, well, thanks for for joining me. I feel like um, I feel like I'm extremely fortunate to be able to snag you for this chat. I just learned you're heading off to the Grand Canyon for a family vacation shortly after this. Um, but where are you now? Right now, I am in Nashville, Tennessee. Okay, and you teach Where at Vanderbilt, right? I teach at Vanderbilt, yes. I teach at the, at the School of Nursing. And I also now teach some undergraduates because of some other work that I've gotten into in the climate space, which I'm sure we will get into. Uh, yeah, we're going to get into that. We have a lot to talk about. Um, before I hit record this morning, you were sharing like your path into, I'm going to call it climate nursing. And... Mm -hmm. um, it seems like we're coming full circle. So tell me a little bit about 
yeah, how you encountered this work and um, even why hanging out on the podcast this morning sparks a, a little bit of nostalgia for you. <laughs> well, I remember um, this is years ago now. I can't, I can't quantify the years. It was probably 20, maybe 16, 17. And I was sort of dabbling in the climate space and wondering, you know, in my sort of um, in my practice, I was I was mostly in practice and, and teaching a little bit on the side. And I remember getting sort of irritated, like, why are there no nurses working on climate change? It's clearly a health issue and Googling. And the name that came up with Beth was Beth Shank. Um, and so I clicked on the link and lo and behold, it brought me to this actual podcast. <laughs> so I remember and I found the links to Annie. So I listened to the podcast. I was like, this, these are my people. Where, where have they been? Um, and then Beth had mentioned Annie and obviously linked to Annie. So I linked to Annie, reached out to Annie um, and started attending meetings. And then maybe a month or two later, Jesse LeClaire and I were voted as co-chairs of the Climate Change Committee. <laughs> so it was like trial by fire. And it was a great experience. And she and I are still great colleagues. Um, I met Teddy Potter, met, you know, Beth more formally. Um, and so really, and you also, that's how I met you. So I yeah. feel like, yeah, all, these all think it was so interesting because this morning I was thinking, wow, this is actually, this podcast is how I got linked in. And really how all this work that I'm in now grew because it was really my work at Annie that then let me, you know, other people know about me um, and I make connections. And so I'm just so excited to be back here with you this morning. Yeah. Uh, I love that. Thanks, Carol. Yeah. And that's, I mean, your story is something that um, totally resonates with me. I, I was a Googler, found uh, found Annie and other orgs online and it's like, oh, I, I need to be part of this. So we know, you know, as, as people are listening in, that's exactly how we just naturally come to this space. Um but you're you're building you're building movements at this point. You have accelerated so quickly in the last few years, um, and I love following your work because I think um, Carol, I think you bring some really interesting, like interdisciplinary, multi-sectoral um, climate work to the nursing realm. Let's let's start talking about that. Um, so you've referenced your practicing nurse, practicing APRN, um, more specifically, you're, you're teaching at Vanderbilt, but maybe right off the bat, let's, let's talk a little bit about CHEAL, the Climate, Health, and Energy Equity Lab. And, and the reason I want to ask about this, um, on a, on a recent School of Nursing commitment call where we were bringing faculty together from nursing schools across the country, um, you shared some of this work with that group and um, just give us the specs. Like, what is CHEAL all about? Uh, who are you doing it with? Who are the folks that are benefiting from it? I'll hand it over to you. Tell us all about it. So CHEAL is, I think it's the reason I was put on earth. It's, it's really, <laughs> I feel like it's that, it's that heavy for me. Um, so I guess, you know, over the years and getting into this work, and I share with when I was on the first, the Annie podcast years ago, Beth asked me how I got into the work. And really, it was, a, um, I really got deeply into it on this trip, I went to Kenya, because I noticed all these people were being dramatically impacted by climate change that who had minimal to no carbon footprint, essentially, right? And I was like, well, this is really unfair. Um, and then when I came back to the States in my practice, a lot of the people that I work with, are you know low-income families? They're living you know five or six people to in a very small apartment. They take the bus everywhere. 
um, you know, they don't have the money to buy an electric car. <laughs> they're, you know, often they don't have air conditioning. They're living these very green lifestyles, but not getting any credit for it. Um, and also, you know, in the summers in Nashville, this last summer was, I think, the hottest summer we've had on record. It was just oppressively and dangerously hot, you know, across the globe, right? We had this massive heat wave. And we know that there's a coming, a lot of these families don't have air conditioning. Um, and the, there's a one housing complex where I work a lot, which is called James Casey. It's a um, MDHA subsidized, HUD subsidized housing complex. Um, and maybe a third of the units just on a windchill survey have air conditioning. Um, the units are really small, they're not well insulated. And the asthma rates for those children are like four times the national average, right? Because the air quality is just so poor. So all of these things, you know, the, the global impacts of climate, the global south, um, island nations and right here in Nashville, I was like, this is really criminal <laughs> and that these yeah, people, yeah. right, they get no social credit for their lifestyle. They get no benefit from sort of bearing the brunt with their bodies and they have these low carbon footprints. Um, and so sort of the, we created this course initially, right, which, which was this interprofessional course where I met all these colleagues um, and we developed a course where students worked in, in, pay, in, in groups to, to do projects that both addressed climate change, health impacts, and also mitigated the carbon that whatever they were gonna do was gonna create. So that's where this would have started growing. It's like, say if we're gonna give everyone air conditioning units, that's great, but that's also gonna increase carbon emissions. So how do we make sure we're sort of accounting for both those things, but do it in a way that doesn't make the low-income people pay for it, pay the price, right? Um, so over the years, these conversations kept happening. And then I met this sociologist named Dr. Zdravka Zankova. Um, she's the other Dr. Z because she was on, she was on a panel with me that some of my students put on years ago. That's the first time we met. And we just started batting this around, right? Then COVID hit. So we sort of, everybody went offline. We came back together. And last summer, she was at my apartment on campus and we were talking about what we could, how we could actually make this work. Um, and so the idea was, she's in the carbon offset space. So she works a lot in carbon markets and how do, we can leverage those for justice. So we were like, what if we could leverage carbon offsets, right? Which I know for a lot of people is a very scary place. It's scary for me. There's a lot of, of um, wickedness and darkness in the carbon offset world. So I'm just learning about that. But if there's a way to leverage that in a way that as companies are buying those, they're benefiting these low-income communities, they're benefiting their health, they're benefiting some part of their life. And so we're, that's what the purpose of so we launched this, we wrote up a proposal, um, the Wondery accepted it, they gave us three years of support, School of Nursing is, is supporting me separately, like outright, because they've always been so supportive of my work, that thing is really great, um, and so we meet on Tuesdays, we meet from two to four, we have about 15 undergrads from all disciplines, they are all brilliant, when I tell you, these the students come in and they're socially justice minded, they're motivated, they have great ideas, they all know how to break code and do all these things that I don't know how to do. Yeah, yeah, me neither, <laughs> amazing. And so they're there and they're, right now what we've started is looking at, um, we've taken some cases and looked at positive and negative spillovers from sort of these types of projects. So we're trying to get a foundation for where could we go wrong and make sure we don't go wrong and then where are people going right? Um, and then we're starting to look at now next week, what would that look like in Nashville? So for example, what are the companies now that are the biggest employers that have the biggest emissions? Like where can we look to start to target 
um, to give people an opportunity, right? <laughs> to do the right thing, essentially. And so that's where we're headed right now. Uh, another way we link back to Annie is um, I have a fellow, I have an Annie fellow. I don't know if I share that with you. Um, Emily Lescano. So we have a fellow from Annie now that's working with us as well. So that's really exciting. And then also a PhD nurse from BUSN named James Machira. So it's really um, Dr. Machira, Dr. Zdravka and I are kind of co-founders. Um, and his work is really interesting. It's in um, like exposome and allostatic load and how that impacts, especially women and children. And so he's coming in with all this knowledge about stress and how stress impacts families. So it's this sort of very big web of complexity that we're sort of very slowly teasing down. Um, when we look at issues that families and national are facing, which is really where I come in. So on the ground in my practice, what do I see that people would benefit the most from? And then how do we align that with with this sort of scary carbon offset uh, markets? So in a nutshell, that's what we're doing. <laughs> extremely complex and technical and um it's just this interwoven web this so this is the first time that i know of um of a healthcare collaborative i'm, I'm going to call it that pulls in carbon offsets mm -hmm. um there are some conversations happening at different health systems right now that they're they're trying to do something along these lines, but it's it's more from a systems level investment perspective, sort of less oriented towards that intersection of human health. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the the way that different entities approach the work and carbon reduction, um, you know, hopefully it will all result in helping us achieve net zero by mid century. <clears throat> Excuse me, but. What I really love about the Chill Lab is that it's health professionals, you, Dr. Machira, coming together saying, here's how this impacts the people in Nashville. Um, here are the, you know, localized solutions that we are investigating. Um, super unique partnership. Um, I, as I was kind of prepping for our chat today, I came across um, a profile that the American Lung Association did with you, Carol, and um, a couple of your comments just sparked sparked a memory there. So I wanted to pull that back up. Um, you referenced that your role in the CHEAL lab and, and working with these folks is is really the, the on the ground, sort of the nurse practitioner um, uh, level of expertise, so to speak. But I want to read a quote that you shared here that helps drive some of this home for, for really why, you know, why this work needs to be done. You said, my patients bear a greater burden from the health harms of climate change and air pollution. Climate change and air pollution disproportionately impacts my patients. And as a primary care provider working in low-income neighborhoods, many of my patients have health conditions and live in unsafe housing conditions. They cannot escape bad air quality or extreme weather by going inside. That's that's really interesting. Um, so they're experiencing it outside and inside. Primary care providers must be leaders in advocating for carbon mitigation policies and safe housing conditions, as well as community adaptation solutions to climate stress. I'm curious, um, as you work with other health professionals, whether it's at your clinic or other educators, are they seeing these things in the same way that you are? Like, what are some of their experiences of working with patients who are, um, you know, bearing bearing the burden on their bodies, like you just said? 
Yeah, I think that's such a great question. I think I think the healthcare industry is so stressed. Um, and it's I think it's such a bad model. I just I really think the models we have for care are just not especially in primary care, you know, that's the that's my lane, are just not very effective. So I think most primary care providers that I know are just trying to keep their waiting rooms running, right? They're just they're kind of just trying to keep keep the doors open. And so I know with all like the cuts and the the different ways the payment methods are working, um, I think people are not as aware or they just they ha don't even have the time to sit down and reflect on how these things are connected. And I think when they think about it, it just seems like it's too big and too complex. Um, I think even if you take away climate change and just talk about air quality, there's really few providers that really even think of those things as being connected. Even if they know they are, it's like, well, I can't do anything about it. Right. Mm -hmm. So people just feel um, sort of not, not dismissive in a deliberate sort of way, but I think just overwhelmed. And then I think I really think the way healthcare is structured now, it has kind of devalued and taken away the relationship between the provider and the patient, right? So, and really that's the most important thing. So I left, I was at Meharry for 20 years, love Meharry, love my colleagues there, love the patients and the experience there. But I was getting so frustrated because I was like, I'm not able, people don't need me to give them lisinopril. They need, I mean, they do, but they need me to go and testify why they shouldn't get evicted. Like this is, What's yeah, happening yeah. on the ground with people, right? It's like, they need me to write a letter saying, you know, this person needs a first floor apartment because they have this health issue. It was always around housing. All the things I was doing, if people were like, the thing I really need to talk to you about, it's like, why are you not taking your blood pressure medicine, whatever? Like, I don't care about that. Here's my, like tomorrow I might not have a place to live, right? And so especially in Nashville with gentrification, the housing pressure, which also relates to crime because people are moving in here, right? Because of forest fires and things happening across the globe. Um, the pressure is so great. And so I think to sort of get back to the, to the point of your question, because <laughs> I went all the way around it. I think without that relationship there, you can't, it's just hard to tie those things together. And so when I left Meharry, I'm sort of starting, I've started this, this sort of concierge practice called Thrive. Um, and it's really only for the patients I saw at Meharry before, I'm not charging anyone right now. It's not, you know, I've got my practice, but it's not, it, it's just kind of a labor of love. But I've noticed when I'm in people's homes, the things I can see that they don't even think to tell me, right? Because it's their normal baseline. So, you know, if you're in a home and you notice there's five people living in there and one bathroom and one towel bar. So on their best day, right, they're going to have mold because there's not a place to put the towel. They can't open a window. So there's all these things that you realize when you're in an apartment or if there's not built-in furniture, right? So people have to stack and they don't have disposable income. They have to stack things on top of each other. And then there's dust and then rodents come. And so there's all these things just about living conditions that if you're not in the homes that, or you haven't experienced that yourself, you just don't think of it. And I think that rift between providers, what we what we come in a room believing we're supposed to do and what the patient needs, there's no alignment there. And so I think like moving to more home-based care and primary care, community-based care is really where we need to focus. And one other thing that Chill is working on <laughs> is hopefully we'll hopefully this will be something the students will tackle is is there a difference in emissions right if if i'm driving to in my little prius or whatever or walking or taking the bus to a whole complex where i can see 15 families in one day right versus them taking off work just all how do we and how do we even begin to quantify all of the different first second third scope emissions that you know which that's your world <laughs> how do we quantify those right so we can see look is this actually better financially for health insurance companies it's i think it will be better right for people's health if their providers there and you can spend time with them and what's in the fridge and what's happening outside your neighborhood um so in a roundabout way to answer that yes i think i just think the model the model is just broken we have to 
we have to change. And I think nurses and nurse practitioners are poised to really do that. We need to remove those restrictions on practice because that's been my biggest hurdle is to have a collaborating physician who who is offered to do this work for free and, and adores me and we've worked together forever, but I need to pay his malpractice and it's really high. Mine is not high, <laughs> right? So it's like these, this one little barrier is preventing me from um, like, you know, taking insurance and, and sort of really being able to expand this practice I'm doing. <laughs> Holy smokes. So um, you shared a graph with me that shows household carbon footprint by income level. And um, I'll link this so that folks can see it too. But Carol, it goes into several different categories. So like food, housing, clothing, transportation, services. And, you know, some of the patients that you're describing have income levels on the lower end. And even just a quick glance looking at this, the, you know, the quote, carbon footprint for somebody that is, you know, earning $150,000 or more as compared to somebody who's earning $10,000 at a quick glance. I mean, it's, it's three to four times as high. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, the more folks are traveling, obviously, the more exotic their diets are, the less localized, um, the, you, you know, larger their homes are. Obviously, um, these folks that are bearing the disproportionate impacts of climate and of climate injustice are are on that low end of of the income spectrum and are creating yeah creating fewer greenhouse gas emissions just naturally as part of their as part of their personhood um i'd love to come back to the idea of shifting the system uh or maybe dismantling it and building it up to mm -hmm. to better um yeah, to to have a better environment where nurses and advanced practice nurses are able to care for their patients in the settings that they're living in, in a way that makes a true difference rather than, like you said, just, you know, prescribing and, and encouraging, encouraging folks to pop a pill, so to speak. Here's the question I want to get at. How are you preparing students to see things in, in this way that you're talking about? How are you preparing them to take care of patients in a different way? I think so. That's a great question. So the biggest hurdle always in schools of nursing is time and curriculum space. That, I mean, everybody says that in VUSN at Vanderbilt, our program is accelerated. They're adding now an MN program. So things are going to start slowing down a little bit. So it'll be easier. Um, but I think it really happens, I think, in the most rich format in those sort of small groups, like in clinical conference, when, when we're sort of debriefing about cases and we can pull in um, you know, if, if in the case it says this person didn't wasn't taking their medication, what are all the social determinants of health that could impact why they're not taking that, right? So I think when you look at social determinants, and I think most schools of nursing now are sort of embedding that in their curriculum, that's a great way to get at that. Um, and really then including climate as like the, the overarching social determinant because it really impacts all of them. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's difficult. I do think when we try to, you know, incorporate it into lectures, like if I'm giving lectures, you know, on, on chest assessment, well, I'll try to bring those things in. But I really think it happens more in sort of the one-off, one-on-one conversations and the small group conversations. And when students get in the, out and practice and they see these things, and then you kind of help them process like, 
what are the barriers to, because they see it, of course, right? When they're out there, like what are the real barriers to this person changing their diet or you even having the time to discuss that with them? What are those systemic barriers? And then how do we sort of get at those? Knowing that in most, in all likelihood, most of our graduates are going to go in and ask someone for a job, right? They're going to get hired on. But I, I tell all of them, every single one of them, I always say, you know, don't be afraid to start your own practice. Like there are barriers, but I think what we need is for, for nurses to be innovative in these spaces because nurses are unbelievably innovative. I listen to that, the ANA podcast, see you now. And I'm just like, it's all about nursing innovation and stuff that we come up with. is just like, my, like nurses are all, especially bedside nurses are like engineers. Every one of them. Yeah. <laughs> so I get no credit, right. And no press. So I think I do encourage them, um, them all one I always say like relationships are the most important so making relationships with your patients and then people in the community that can benefit your patients whether that's someone at the health department or someone in housing like what are your issues getting to know your community and then like I always also stress like sharing meals I also stress sharing drinks if it's necessary right but like happy hours dinners like sharing you know community with people because that I think it increases accountability right so I talked to them about the importance of that. If, if I have a patient who is getting evicted and they need housing and I call Urban Housing Solutions, if I know the name of the person I'm calling and they know me, that person is not going to fall through the cracks. So just these things that they're not really quantifiable to teach, but knowing like if I call, you know, if I'm going to put you in touch with Beth and Beth knows Carol's going to call and check up, right? Like, I just feel like it fosters accountability. So I try to get them to think of these ways that they can um, sort of submit those cracks that people fall through. And then also they have great ideas. I mean, students will in real time come up with great ideas for fixing solutions. I had one student I remember years ago in a lecture class, I was sharing with them a story about a patient I had who was experiencing homelessness at the time and she was diabetic. And over the years, you know, if we look at her A1C and blood sugar graphs and the summer would go way up. It's because she didn't have, she didn't have a place to store her insulin. So in the summer, her insulin was like denaturing, right? And the student raised their hand and said, tell her to bury it. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> they had this recommendation like give her a plastic bag and tell her to bury it and it worked so I mean students this was a bedside nurse who had a similar issue before and she was like here's something they can do I'm not advocating that we advise all patients right to bury their insulin but in this particular case and I just raised that to bring up they have innovative solutions I think we as faculty and as as colleagues don't encourage them you know to, to sort of go for it. And there are there are a ton of barriers. So I think also trying to break some of those barriers down like that I'm encountering in practice. That's the other thing I wanna do is write something or put something about out about, you know, when you're starting a practice, these are all the things that you don't know you don't know and the barriers you hit so that people don't have to go through the same struggles. But yeah, we all should have our own. We, we need a bunch of different little systems. It's like biodiversity, right? We need to have a lot of different little systems working to get at these issues. I love that analogy. I, I need to write that one down biodiversity, different health systems to serve the patients. Um, Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Carol. So last podcast conversation, um, I talked with a couple faculty out of the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. Um, So Dr. Rainey Link is working in the School of Nursing there, and his colleague, Dr. Andy Nesmith, is in the School of Social Work. And we talked about that intersectionality and how those kind of disciplines can learn from one another. I know you're in primary care, Carol. Um, 
but one question that pops up as you're talking about, you know, preparing your students to think about how these clients are living within their community and what their realistic um, experiences are. One barrier for me that comes to mind from an acute care setting is there's this mindset, I think, that nursing and other care providers might have that, oh, the social work department or the care coordinator, that's their job. It's their job to think about the, you know, the patients and the clients in their community setting. We're working with, you know, Susie Q at the bedside today. Um, Is that, hopefully I'm mistaken on that, but do you think that might be part of the challenge of you know, of us as nurses working with folks at the bedside, our thinking doesn't go beyond the doors of the hospital. Yeah, I think absolutely. And that is true in primary care too, right? And part of the issue is just the volume. Like you can't, you know, when I was at Meharry and I had 2000 patients, you can't do that with everybody, right? If now I have 50 families, I can do that with all of them. So I think one of the shifts that needs to happen is we need to be able to sustain ourselves, right? With smaller pods sort of, or communities of of patients. yeah, I think that that's huge. And I, I also think there is a lot of, you know, even even within primary care, it's like there's a lot of shifting. We just, nursing and healthcare has lost its sort of holism, right? And nurses really are the voice to kind of bring that back because that's our, supposed to be, right? Our whole thing, right? That's what makes us different. Um, and so I, I do think it's important even to double click on that with students to remember like the roots of nursing and what it what it has always really meant to be about, especially as we get into I don't know how to say this eloquently, but I feel like even with like the new standards coming through academics, it's like nursing is always trying to prove itself to medicine. It feels like that somehow. Yeah. Nursing, nurses are trying, we're trying to prove our worth and we don't need to do that. Just walk out of hospital and see, like, let, I'm not, right. If we just don't show up, everybody will see. So I think if we would value our, our profession more, um, as we really think about the value we really bring and sort of reroute ourselves in what our model is, which is that sort of meta paradigm of nursing, which is so key to addressing all these things, right? And I can't tell you, I mean, I have one patient on my mind right now because tomorrow morning, she's moving from an apartment in a subsidized housing community where she's lived her entire life to one way across town while everyone else is getting resettled in these nice new apartments. And she's she also is the person who interrupts gang violence, who all the kids know her, like she's sort of, she's this key figure in this community. Um, and all the barriers that she's facing. When I go and see her, we do not talk about health. I mean, it's health, but it's like, how can we maybe, what what are options we have to keep you here? Or what are different things that we can do? She does not want to talk about her blood sugar right now, right? And so we we can get to that. Um, But I think, I think, you know, task shifting is going to happen. And I think it's important. I just think if there was maybe more communication between teams and if there wasn't such clear lines of delineation about, well, this is yours and this is mine, right? Because that seems to be, and nurses do it too. We get turfy about our, what, what we're in charge of and what we're supposed to do. And is, I mean, the person needs to be the center of, of the care, right? Um, but at the end of the day, though, really to get at that, I think we have to break down those systems. And I think it's going to have to be... Um, care providers with really meaningful long-term relationships, you know, like it used to be back in the day, like the old country docs, you know, um, you, you can't have 4,000 patients on your panel if you're meeting those needs and it can't cost people 10 grand a year to access that either. Uh, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I just had somebody recommend, um, 
called a midwife the other day. I, I, I have not watched it at all. Have you either? No, but I want to. Okay. Sounds like we, sounds like we should. Um, sh this, this person who referenced it mentioned that, you know, like, like, back in the old days where it, in these midwives weren't just serving a population, you know, of, of pregnant women and, and, you know, babies, that sort of thing. It was also just holistic care in the community, in people's homes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I'm generally not somebody that like kind of tracks the, the media, so to speak around, uh, are all like health professions, but I think this one might be a little bit unique. I've heard it more than once. Um, well, I mean, I think too, I want to ask you something because I think also, I mean, if you see this with your colleagues, I think a lot of nurses, especially, get burnt out because they don't have those relationships, right? I feel like it, it's much more rewarding. Um, it kind of feeds you too, not not that you're in a, a parasitic relationship with your patients, right? But I feel like you feel more fulfilled when you're able to see those impacts and build relationships. And I think a lot of people, especially they go into primary care, like most people go into it because they want that and then get dis disillusioned because you're not, you know, you're 10 minutes with everybody. And so no, you can't even remember people's names, right? And so yeah. I feel like for professionals too, right? I don't know if you see that, but. I Well, here's a little bit my philosophy coming into this. I think there's something really deep in us as humans that draws us towards those meaningful relationships. And even if it's, you know, folks are totally experiencing burnout, like you say, from really fast patient turnover and the expectations of clinical care, whatever that setting is. Um, but I think that's something within us where, I'm not sure if rewarding is the word that pops into my mind, but just more natural and more like appropriate for the situation. If we have people that we're trying to care for evolutionarily, that doesn't occur in 15 minutes, you know, sitting in a little white room. Um, so may maybe it's something innate and maybe that's something that has driven us as nurses to, to do that work. It's like the oldest method of caring for one another. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks for that question. I like, I like thinking about that. So as we wrap here, I want to invite you to just share your vision. You have your hands in so many places uh, and, and your work inspires me all the time. I, I think, um, Carol, when I think of you, I think of you as a, just a bastion of climate and environmental justice. And you come at this work from like 18 different angles. So me asking you the question of like, what is your vision? This might be super complex. Um, but if you could just wrap it in, in a couple sentences, like what do you see? And how can we have hope for this work in the future? That's a great question. I think, honestly, it's, I think it's simple. I would love if we had care... I'm going to call them relationships, um, communities where, you know, people get their needs met, relate to their health, whether it's food, like growing vegetables. I'm growing veggies in my front yard right now for, <laughs> for folks like, yeah. you know, yeah. gardens and there's sort of holistic access to care to green space, right? Communities have access to green space. So more sustainably built communities. Um, I think right now, 
what I would love to see, and I'm thinking about this because right now I'm so focused on chill, is as all these resources are getting thrown around, right? Um, with carbon offsets. If we think about climate change, the roots of it really, you know, go back to industrialization. That was really funded by slavery. So when we think about the connections, like all the social justice issues we face, especially with racial divides in the United States and equity, I feel like climate change and carbon offsetting and accounting gives us in a way, a method that can either go very badly or could actually help us to kind of right some wrongs and reparate some things right, that we haven't done before just by tracking that. And so I guess that's what my hope for a chill is that we can find ways to sort of enact a, a sort of climate reparations that results in mitigation and also meaningful change. Because there's, I mean, we've been working at this for you know decades. Why are there disparities? They persist, right? Because because there's racism and because there's issues that within our policies, right, that, that allow these things to persist. Um, and even beyond race and rural communities, people are, you know, people are hurting as well and people just feel separate and disillusioned. So the country feels very divided right now to me. Um, and I feel like if we go about this the right way and we're bringing in private industry and we're bringing in nonprofits and we're bringing in communities from all areas, from rural communities, from, from urban communities, it feels like there's got to be a way to let this be the issue that unites all of us, right? That's my hope, I guess, is that, you know, we are all facing, it's like a, it's like a meteor's coming to earth. It's here. It's climate change, right? Um, and if this can't unite us, then, then what is going to? And I think it's, I think in the healthcare space specifically, um, we have great innovators, especially among nurses. And I really think if we just had the time and space to think about these things, which I'm so grateful to, to my institution for giving me that, um, I really think we could come up with ways to meaningfully make these changes happen. And also, you know, think of think of like Teddy Potter said, you know, the planet is your patient. And I love that. I, I think like thinking of, of we're all part of this whole, we're all a drop in the ocean, right? And the ocean is all connected and um, how we can sort of work on healing each other ourselves the the earth that we've been given yeah i think you've given a lot of people goosebumps just for listening to this and um i'm so grateful every chance i get the you know to sit down with you and drink a little java and, and hear what you're about um and it gives me more language it gives the rest of us more language to talk about this and to think about this extremely complex work but distilling it down for how that impacts the work that we're doing with patients and with our families and communities uh, every day. So Dr. Carl Ziegler, thank you for your time today. Thank you for the work that you do uh, in Nashville and, and far beyond to make a difference. I'm happy to know you. Well, I want to say the same that line, the planet is our patient. You were the first person that comes to my brain uh, because of the, the work you're doing around mitigation. That's at the, at the end of the day, that's all that matters. And so you also inspire me um, in this community of nurses that is working on these things together. I, it's just all, all of my ideas are coming from these conversations that, that we end up having with each other. So Likewise. Thank you. That is so inspiring. Dr. Ziegler is weaving together real-world need with visionary multi-solving, amplifying carbon mitigation, climate justice, and health at once. Go, Carol! And thank you, Shanda, for the terrific interview, and to Dr. Carol Ziegler for sharing your inspiring work. 
And thank you all for listening, and please check us out at environ.org, and please subscribe, comment, and share the podcast. Talk to you next time. Thank you.